turn to uh, Isaiah 55. We'll be reading out of Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. Come all, you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give, er, give ear and come to me. Hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of all the peoples. Surely you will summon nations who, not, who know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his, his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of a thorn bush will grow the pine tree and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord renowned for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Thank you, Nathan. While we have our Bibles open to Isaiah 55, let me just call your attention to a couple verses there that might have stood out to you. <clears throat> Verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful Sunday that we have in front of us to celebrate uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, that week before your, your death and your burial and your resurrection. That week that was so confusing to so many. The week that was looked forward to for many, by many, 
thinking that you would become the king of Israel, thinking that you would lead that nation to overthrow Rome, thinking you were going to bring peace and prosperity to that land that had been ravished by first one nation and then another. But Lord, you came to bring quite a different kingdom. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And as we think back on those folks that tried to understand the activities of, of that week and how confused they must have been and yet later begin to understand your great plan of salvation as you revealed it to your apostles, your disciples that were there, and then later to Paul. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and your revelation to us. Guide us as we look into it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Weston, for trying to capture um, some thoughts that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, we're going to be comparing some verses, looking at some verses, not really comparing them, looking at some verses this morning about God's great plan of salvation, which involved his planning ahead and his predestination and his choosing. It also involves our choosing and our responsibility. I've entitled this this morning, God's Gracious Choosing, Our Required Believing. And as I think back on that, that week, that those people were trying to understand, Palm Sunday, the plan of the ages beginning to unfold in its entirety in, in front of them. A plan conceived in the mind of the great eternal God. A plan to demonstrate his love and his grace and his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, and all the glories of heaven. What a plan. Way above anything we could have ever dreamed of. He decided to do it through a creation of a, of a being a little lower than the angels, mankind, you and I. He created them, us, for intimate friendship and fellowship with our Creator. But He created that man and mankind and you and I with the capacity to accept or reject the Creator's love. The capacity to loving follow, lovingly follow, or stubbornly, stubbornly resist his offer of love and intimacy. What a plan. What a plan to demonstrate his love. The place called Earth, this creation called humans, on that Palm Sunday we're about to witness the unfolding and the culmination of this wonderful, unimaginable, display of God's love and his great rescue of his creature, 
man. God's wonderful plan of salvation. See, the Greek empire had brought them, the Greek language had brought them um, a lot of education, a lot of libraries. It also brought them the worship of Greek gods, but at this time it had been replaced by the armies and the network of the great Roman Empire. Along with the Roman Empire also came the worship of their leaders. But while the seeds of decadence and decay were working their way through the Roman Empire, less than 35 years before Palm Sunday, in a little seemingly unimportant little town in Palestine called Bethlehem, a baby boy was born in a livestock stall. And as you recall back uh, to some of the scripture about that, at that time and shortly after that time, how Satan put his plan. He's tr he was trying to thwart God's salvation plan. He always has tried to thwart it. He continues to thwart it. Although the resurrection finished any hope that he had of stopping this plan. Little did the world know that what was in store. That little baby boy escaped that edict of killing all those young babies under two years old. He escaped that down into Egypt. Later, he became a carpenter. And that carpenter later became a prophet, a teacher, and a miracle worker. But still, in the scheme of things, this was just a speck on the whole Roman Empire, or the whole world for that matter. Just a little obscure place over there in the Middle East. One miracle worker walking around with a group of people, teaching, preaching, healing, but never getting very far from home. What impact could that have possibly had? Well, Palm Sunday begins to show us what that impact was going to be. Things were about to change. But they weren't going to change like man thought they were going to change. Again, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I have a plan that is so different from what you think. As they laid the palm branches down on the road to prepare his way into Jerusalem, many hoped and prayed that the new kingdom was about to be born. A new kingdom with its capital of Jerusalem, not Rome. A new kingdom that would bring peace and prosperity and not war and turmoil. Some of his close followers thought they might be members of his cabinet. 
on the front lines to overthrow the Romans with the miracle worker, Jesus as their king. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His plans are not our plans. 2,000 years later, we know what happened and what they couldn't have possibly known at the time. Even though Christ would inform his disciples about some of the things that were going to happen, his death, his burial, his resurrection, it was falling on ears that could not hear that, couldn't understand that. Because nothing like this had ever happened. This is, this is not how things are supposed to work. We're supposed to have kings and power and strength and armies and, and conquering. Different kind of a king. The narrative has been written. Four gospel accounts give details of the God-man Jesus, his life, <clears throat> excuse me, his death and his resurrection. Letters and accounts to churches and individuals fill in the full picture of God's salvation plan. There was to be a king, all right. And there was going to be a new kingdom. But the subjects were going to be called believers. They were going to be called Christians. But the great thing about this kingdom, their sins and their stubborn rebellion would be swept away in forgiveness. Wow, what a plan. In his grace and mercy and love, God would make a way for that friendship and fellowship that was in the beginning in the garden would be restored. It would even be restored to such a point that these humans that are a little lower than an angels would be called the sons of God. We'd be adopted into his family. We'd be his children. Even heirs with Jesus Christ. Even having all the blessings of his son, Jesus Christ. Eternity, but even more than eternity, close relationship, close fellowship with God. For the rest of eternity. Can we understand his plan of salvation? Well, we get glimpses into it, but it wouldn't have been very easy for them to understand because it was a very unreasonable thing. By their own reasoning, they could have not figured out how God was going to take away their sin. How they were going to be put into a relationship, a family relationship with Jesus. He told them about the death and the resurrection, but could they have understood that? No, because it's not reasonable. It's not reasonable to believe in a resurrection. It's not reasonable for me to believe in a resurrection. I was born and raised on the farm. I know that when we butchered and we were going to take that steer or that pig and hang him on that tree to take care of him, that when that 22 bullet entered that brain, 
in a matter of seconds, life was gone. And there was nothing I could do, you could do, or anybody could do to bring life back into a dead body. It is totally unreasonable to think that a dead person can be raised from the dead. We don't learn that by our reason. We learn that by our faith. An unbelieving world does not believe that because it's unreasonable. Their experience, their knowledge, what they've grown up with, what they've been taught, what, what they see makes a resurrection unreasonable. Even after Christ came out of the tomb and began to appear to first the gals and then the men, they couldn't believe it. It didn't fit anything that they knew. We don't believe those things through reason. We believe them through faith. There's a number of things in Scripture that are beyond our reason, and we take them by faith. Scripture says that there is one God. One God. And yet, Scripture tells us He exists in the person excuse me, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when you get that figured out, come and let me know how that works. Because nobody's been able to figure that out and give a good explanation of that. But that's what the Bible teaches. One God in three persons. Does the world believe that Something like that would exist. One God in three persons? No, the world doesn't believe that. Unbelieving eyes cannot understand the Trinity. But we read it on the pages of Scripture. And therefore we believe it through faith. I'll tell you another thing that's unreasonable, contradictory, and that's God, the God-man, Jesus. Scripture teaches that he is fully God and that he was fully man. When we walk the face of this earth, Scripture teaches us that he was ever bit the son of God, but he was ever bit the son of man. Yeah? You got that figured out? Me neither. There's another thing that is hard for me to understand. This Bible is and claims to be the Word of God. The Word of God. Everything needed for life, salvation, and living. The word of God. God revealed himself to man through his word. Does the world believe that? Does the world believe this is 
the Word of God? No, they don't believe this is the Word of God. They believe it's a patchwork of books, made up, much of it, some of it pretty good history, but much of it just opinions of man. Well, a lot of authors over 1,500 years, different books and different letters have been compiled together, and God calls it his word. How reasonable is that? Not very reasonable. But as you study it, you look at it, you work through it, you become a Christian, your eyes begin to be open to the things of God, and you believe it's the word of God. But you didn't reach that conclusion by reason. You reached that conclusion by faith. The virgin birth. That's not reasonable. There's no way that's reasonable. God's word says that the Holy Spirit came upon her and Mary became pregnant. Does the world believe that? I remember sitting in a community Bible study one time and I can remember the house and I can remember where the lady was sitting. And she said, I can believe a lot of things in the Bible, but there's one thing I can't believe and that's the virgin birth. Well, that's a tough one, okay, but there's a lot of tough ones in here. That's just the beginning of the tough ones. But God reveals these things to us. They're by faith. They're not by our own reason. Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When it comes to God's plan of salvation and some of the things he has disclosed to us about that plan, I can't think of any other verses in Scripture that ought to be read than those. Because God's plan of salvation his plan hatched in eternity past in his mind. That plan between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to have created an earth, have men born, men created, have a choice to either love him or reject him, and then figuring out that in eternity past, Christ would go to the cross for us and he would display his love and his grace for us and bring us back into relationship with him. Incredible. We wouldn't know any of those things by our own reasoning at all. The only way we know a little bit about it is what's been revealed to us in Scripture. We've been in Ephesians. And you get into the first part of the book of Ephesians. And 
Paul begins to reveal what has been revealed to him about salvation, the great salvation plan. And he uses these words here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's just, he is just overtaken with the idea of God's plan to come and rescue us in Jesus Christ and to take our sin and take it away. Not only take it away, but give us his righteousness to such a degree that we could live in a perfect relationship with him. He's blessed us in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then he starts on this idea of our salvation being something that he put into, put into process before we were ever created. And we begin to read these things and, it, and, 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 and all kinds of questions come to our mind. Because as he begins to say these things, and we'll look at a number of verses here in a little bit, put them up on the screen, it, it, it just doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. This is all about his love. This is all about the kind intention of his will. This is all about his grace. This is all about God is demonstrating his plan of salvation, not only to us, but principalities and rulers in high places. To the praise of his glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times. And as we celebrate Palm Sunday, you're, you're, we're just looking at that that fullness of time just coming into that week and going to climax by his death and his burial and his resurrection. It's going to be accomplished. That which was put, was in the mind of God and was put into operation in eternity past was going to happen right before these people's eyes. We get to look back on it. They experienced it, but with a lot of fuzz over the rise. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of time. That is the summing up of all things in Christ in the heavens and on earth. Wow, that's what was taking place. That's what we're celebrating some 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ coming into Jerusalem, them thinking that he was going to be king, him, he knowing that he was going to be king, all right, but it was a different kind of a kingdom. 
So as you go on through Scripture, we'll start with some verses, and I, I just gathered a few, and uh, for the sake of, of being on target here with our, with our idea, the first, slide, the first set of slides, we begin to look at those that are, that he, as he chose us, okay? Some of you can see that. Uh, I have them here in front of me. Ephesians 1, 4, we just read, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. John 15, 16, and 19. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. And by the way, they thought that they had found him, told their friends and told their brother that they need to come and and we found the Messiah. We're going to follow him. And then he tells them this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Acts chapter 10, 41. Not, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen, let's talk about the disciples again, who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, he tells us, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Romans chapter 11, verse 7. This theme is all through Scripture. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. God has a plan. He's working out his eternal plan. This plan started in eternity past, and it's going to go into eternity future. And God is in charge of it, and he's going to work it out. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to believe it all. Colossians 3.12. So as to those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and the faith and truth. 2 Timothy 2.10, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that, they almost the, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Of course, that theme goes all through Scripture. You can find it, there's just, just a few verses on it. And as we look at it, we're often just really puzzled with it. We just can't seem to put it together in our mind, how that his choosing and our responding to that choosing, our requirement to believe fit together. I'd like to suggest something to you. They don't fit together very well. <laughs> they don't fit together in our mind, but they fit together in the mind of God. And I know they fit together in the mind of God for this reason. 
He reveals both to us. Now we look at some verses about our responsibility. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you remember, this is Ephesians 1.13. If you remember in verses uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, he is telling us there that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. In verse 13, he is telling these people that the letter is being written to. He said, you have salvation. What? Having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Everyone that believes in me will have eternal life. John 12, 44 through 48. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me. Now, this is an interesting passage because what happens in Scripture, if you follow the idea of God's choosing His sovereignty, His election, His predestination through Scripture, sometimes you'll find it in places where it doesn't say anything about our believing. And if you follow the passages in Scripture about our believing, our need to believe through Scripture, you will find many, many places where it is our need to believe and no mention of our choosing. But some places in Scripture, the two will be mixed together. This is one of those places. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I speak is that will judge him." Excuse me, I mentioned that both of those things are mentioned here. No, this is the believe. I put this in here because there's believe and rejection. Those are, those are both true. We need to believe, and if you don't believe, you're rejecting. And if you, don't, and if you reject the truth of God, you're accountable before God for your eternity. That's plainly taught in Scriptures. Acts 4.4. 4. But as many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. This is at Pentecost. Now, 1 Peter 2.6. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Turn with me to, uh, to 1 Peter for just a moment. Well, this is an interesting passage, and the setting is an interesting passage because it has both uh, God's choosing and, and our, um, our belief in it. 
This is 1 Peter 2.6, and that's what is quoted here. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in me will not be disappointed. So the emphasis there in that verse is on our believing. Interesting enough, verse chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 say this. He's writing to these people in uh, Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, uh, Asia, Bithynia, and, are, and he calls them who are chosen a God, chosen who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So there you have the idea of being chosen. There you have, the, in the other one, you have the idea of being believed. Now, sometime back in all my, and it's been a number of years now, but in my search to try and figure out how these things all fit together, um, as many of us do when we go to Bible college and and whatever, and you start studying these things, and you, just, you go, huh, how's this all work? <clears throat> you, you read a verse like that, and it says, oh, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And so one of the first thoughts that might come to your mind is, oh, well, I guess the way God chose is he looked into the future and saw who was going to choose him, and so he chose them. Well, that doesn't do much uh, for the idea of God choosing us. That, that is just a response. That would be just a response uh, to us. Uh, it, would, it would also, if you carried that on out in your thinking, it would, it would um, yeah, a, a hypothetical case, I'm sure, but would be this. If, if our coming to Christ was totally dependent upon us, then the, re the resurrection, burial, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ could take place, could be planned in eternity past, and could take place, and no one could believe it. And it's a possibility that no one would believe it. And so there wouldn't be any church, there wouldn't be any body of Christ, there wouldn't be any believers. There, this plan of God would be thwarted because man decided not to believe it. Well, I don't think so. It's a plan of God that is um, brought up in eternity past. The other thing that um, when you're studying scripture and you're looking at um, the use of different words, I, I'll bring this to your attention. Um, chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19, First Peter. But with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was appeared in these last days. So the, the same use of the word, in, it's the same word that was in verse 1, and here it says that Christ was foreknown to go to the cross. Well, it, you, you couldn't use the same interpretation. You couldn't say, God looked forward to see if Jesus was actually going to go through with it, and because he did, that's the reason I foreknow it. No, that, that's not the idea. The idea of being foreknown is a, is a plan known ahead of time by God. So, in my, um, well, I'll continue. I'll give you some of my conclusions here in a minute. Um, Acts 13, 48. 
When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God, and as many has been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, there the, it's mixed again. There's that thought of God's choosing and our believing intertwined in one verse. That, that happens in a number of places in Scripture. And then John chapter 6, verse 37 through 34. And here it is again. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up in the last day. Then it says, for this is the will of God, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up in the last day. I think back to some of the things I've heard of preachers trying to explain the sovereignty of God and predestination and and some of the things they've done to verses like that, uh, well, it's not all who believe. It, it, God is not willing that all should perish. Uh, so you have to do these gymnastics. You have to do this jumping around with the Word of God and taking out of context, both if you're trying to defend uh, the sovereignty of God and when you're trying to defend the free will of man and trying to get them together. You have to do some terrible gymnastics with the scripture. How, and we'll look at this Romans passage in a moment. So here's some of the things that I've wrestled with over the years, same as you. God chooses, we must believe, and yet we're still, and we're responsible for our unbelief. So, when we read a passage like God chooses in eternity past, chooses some for salvation, then a logical inference of that is that he chooses some then for damnation. But the scripture doesn't say that. But that is a logical inference but it's an incorrect conclusion because he holds all men responsible for not trusting him. Romans chapter 1 tells us every man is without excuse. We come before the judgment seat of Christ and, and they're not judged because they weren't chosen. They're judged because of their unbelief. Another thing we could say when we read that, God chooses some for salvation, and so if you're chosen, therefore, uh, it, it's, it doesn't make any difference whether I believe or not. It's, it, that's a pre-done deal. All through Scripture, it tells us that we must believe. We must come to Him and believe in Him. That's, that's, that theme goes all through Scripture. So, what are 
What are some of the conclusions about that? Well, I'll tell you what some of my conclusions are. I, I have a couple. I wish I'd have, I wish I'd have been the one that that uh, pinned this. Um, God's sovereign election and man's exercise of responsibility in choosing Jesus Christ seem opposite and irreconcilable truths. And from our limited human perspective, they are opposite and irreconcilable. That is why so many earnest, well-meaning Christians throughout the history of the church have floundered trying to reconcile them. Since the problem cannot be resolved by our finite minds, the result is always to compromise one truth in favor of the other, or to weaken both by trying to make a take a position somewhere between them. This commentator says we should let the antimony, antimony remain, believing both truths completely and leaving the harmonizing of them to God. Here's what John MacArthur says about the idea of the sovereignty of God and our response. It is not that God's sovereign election or predestination eliminates man's choice in faith. Divine sovereignty and human response are integral and inseparable parts of salvation, though exactly how they operate together only the infinite mind of God knows. And over the years, that's where I'm going to let it rest. I am going to believe in the sovereign choosing of God. I'm going to rejoice in the fact that I was in the arms of Jesus when he went to the cross because I was in the mind of Christ. I'm going to rejoice in the fact that I went to the grave with Jesus because I was in the mind of Christ. I'm going to rejoice in the resurrection because I was with him in the resurrection because I was in the mind of Christ. But I'm also going to rejoice that God made me a creature and put me in a family that when they shared Jesus Christ with me and told me that I must believe, that I must trust him, that I must make a decision to follow him. I'm going to praise God for that, for creating me in such a way. Turn with me to Job, and I'll close with this this morning. Job. Why would we go to Job? Because it's a lesson I had to learn. Job chapter 38. Now you know the story of Job, and if you don't, Here's a quick rundown. Satan goes to God and says, the only reason that guy wants to follow you is because you're so good to him. And God says, oh, really? Well, why don't you just start taking away things I've given him? And let's see what he does. Now, if there was ever a situation that seemed unfair... That fits the bill. 
And it turns out that Job didn't deserve what God had originally blessed him with or what got taken away from him and all the punishment. He didn't, it, it, was, it wasn't anything about Job's deserving. It was just about Job, God, a plan, Satan, and all the interaction. And Job turns out to be the character in the middle. And he loses his livestock, he loses his children, he loses his health. It's just miserable. And then he's got friends coming to him that say, well, I think it's because you must have sinned. And Job says, no, I don't think it is. And, but then Job, in defending himself, begins to add a little bit about things about God that he really didn't know. And he, he, he begins to, begins to uh, guess, as it were. And in verse 38, the Lord finally comes to him and says, Job, okay, enough's enough. You've been through enough, and, but I, I want to tell you something, Job. You are talking about things that you don't know what you're talking about. Verse 38, the, or chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, <clears throat> Who is this that darkens the counsel by words without knowledge? Uh, Job, you're mixing up truth and things that you don't know. You're mixing them up. <clears throat> I love this. And, and, and this is, if I can tell you this, this is like personally to me in trying to figure out God and circumstances in life and why this happens to me or why this ha doesn't happen to me or why this happens to you. And, and, and I, I can't make sense out of it. Now, gird up your loins like a man. <laughs> we, we'd say, pull up your pants. And I will ask you, hey, Job, and you instruct me. Now, let's just start out with this question. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? What do you think, what, what, what do you think the countenance on Job looks like right now? Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh, maybe I should. Do you know that the Lord goes on for three chapters with this? He goes on with three chapters. And Job is, I don't know if he was sitting down or if he was standing up or he started standing up and then was sitting down. But before he gets done, Job is just. Well, we'll get to that. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its how was its basis sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God chattered for joy, uh, uh, where were you? Or who enclosed the sea with its doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and I set bolts and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here you shall hear your proud wave stop. He enclosed the seas. And then, I love, I love 12, and I got it marked in my Bible. 
Have you ever in your life, <laughs> you know, I don't know what this is in the Hebrew, but I, as I translate it into English as the New American Standard, I, I just love this verse. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you ever done that, Joe? So what are we doing here? We are taking a look at Almighty God, the author of salvation, that's going to display his love, his grace, his mercy, his righteousness, his justice to who knows what's out there in the universe. He calls it rulers of darkness and principles of high places. But he's going to display that in our salvation. Turn to chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. <laughs> I, 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 I want to tell you, Lord, I, I get it. I, I get it. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Nah, I think that's probably... Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. <laughs> this is confession time. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Well, what, is it, what, is that, what am I reading that for and why am I bringing that into this idea of salvation and choosing and free will and all that? Simply because I do not believe you can put them together and that we are required by faith to believe them and that even in our good study and trying to understand them, we need to be really, really careful that we interpret Scripture according to the standards of hermeneutics. The literal interpretation of Scripture, the context of the Scripture, the culture and the setting of the Scripture, how it fits in with the rest of Scripture. Because I have seen on both sides of the Sovereignty, God, and free will argument. Terrible things done with the scripture. Trying to finagle and make sure, trying to fit them together. Now here's what I want to close with on this Palm Sunday. And I know you're ready for me to close. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear 
without a preacher. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's what we're to be about. And if you tend to lean way over to one side of the sovereignty of God issue and, and all the things that that might mean, but you, but, but you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior and the blood of Christ has washed you and you believe and you're saved by grace alone, then I'm all right with it. I'm going to have to fellowship with you into eternity so I might as well start fellowshipping with you here. And if you're one of those people that are, it's all free will and God didn't have anything to do with it or much to do with it, good for you. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ is washed you and, you and you're saved by the grace of God and by grace alone and not your own works, then I'm going to have to fellowship with you for the rest of eternity. So we might as well start now. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Christ went to that cross. And then he met with his disciples and he said, go into all this world and make disciples. Go do it. Go do it. I've got a salvation plan worked out from eternity past. Just get going. and Carry out what I've told you to do. Our Father and our God, we thank you. And this morning, if there's someone here that has not yet placed their trust in you, I pray that in the quietness of their own heart, just sitting there, as we approach Resurrection Sunday, as we approach the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, the celebration of that, pray that they will know in their heart that they need you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that they will trust you right now, this morning, and sitting in, right in their very chair. And you will come into them because you've promised that if we come to you, you will not cast us out. We come believing. We may not know a lot about Bible. We may not a lot, they may not know a lot about uh, you, Lord, yet. But they know they're a sinner, and they know they need to be saved. So, Lord, we ask that in their heart, as they sit there right this morning, that they reaffirm to you that they need you as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.